pause this morning from the account of the crucifixion that uh, Brett has been leading us through in the Gospel of John. And uh, we're going to back up and take a look at the events in the last week of the life of Jesus leading up to the crucifixion, but from the perspective of a different biblical author, and that would be the writer of the Gospel of Mark. So I'm going to ask you in just a moment to turn to Mark chapter 11, but first, I have a passage I want to read from the Old Testament. The Old Testament, it's Malachi chapter 3. Malachi 3, and basically the first seven verses. So written through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit about 400 years before the coming of Christ. He makes this prophecy through his servant Malachi. God says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed." From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Now let's turn over uh, to the New Testament, Gospel of Mark, chapter 11. We have a fairly lengthy passage to read, so I won't ask you to stand, but do... Listen and read along and remember these are the words of God. So Mark 11, beginning in verse 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? 
And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers." And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And... Whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. Let's go to the Lord for his help in our time in the Word. Our Father, we ask that you would send your Spirit to be present among us. Would you meet us in our need and our inadequacy? Would you make your true and faithful word profitable and fruitful in our lives? Would you help us to walk in faith and obedience that glorifies you? We pray it in Christ's name for his sake. Amen. Well, Mark tells the story of the triumphal entry in a way that is slightly different from the other Gospels. Of course, this doesn't mean that any of the accounts are contradictory or inaccurate, but rather each one focuses on different elements 
that help them make the particular points they want to emphasize. So for example, Mark does not quote from Zechariah 9 the way Matthew and John do. He's not trying to demonstrate the fulfillment of that particular prophecy. Mark also does not include the protests of the Pharisees as it's recorded uh, by Matthew and Luke. It is only Mark who gives enough detail to show that the triumphal entry and the cleansing of the temple actually take place on two different days, two consecutive days. If you only read Matthew and Luke, you could get the idea that both of those events took place on the same day. It's not that they say it's the same day, but they just don't go into detail about the timing. But because of this added detail about the timing, it is only Mark who intersperses the story of the cursing of the fig tree within the same period of time that includes the cleansing of the temple. In other words, Mark is telling the story in a particular way that pays specific attention to certain details so that we, the readers, will make certain connections. He wants us to see the Holy Spirit. We know it was the Holy Spirit leading Mark to record these events in this way to make plain a connection between at least three events. The triumphal entry has a purpose which is tied to Jesus cursing the fig tree, which has a purpose which is tied to his cleansing of the temple. The three events are tied together in a single story, which makes a particular point. And the point is not so much the meekness of the king riding into Jerusalem on the foal of a donkey as it is emphasized elsewhere. Here it is the authority of the king coming to assert his ownership over God's house. The Lord is coming to his temple. It's the promise we read just a few minutes ago in Malachi chapter 3. The Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Remember what that was, how that was described. It's presented as a day of judgment for evildoers among the people. He draws near for judgment and is a swift witness against sorcerers, adulterers, those who swear falsely, those who oppress the poor, and so forth. And it's also a day of purification for the priests, the sons of Levi, which you remember are the priestly tribe of Israel. He says they will be refined like gold and silver so that the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord. You see, when the Lord comes to his temple... It's not like a political candidate running for office, trying to get everyone to approve of him and vote for him, vote in his favor. It's not so people may examine and evaluate if he is worthy to take authority over God's house. He is coming to evaluate them. He is going to judge the condition of his father's house and the stewardship of those who were supposed to take care of it. The question is not whether he is worthy or has sufficient authority. It's whether Israel is ready for his coming. You see, Israel stands in a unique relationship 
to God. They are God. They're called God's chosen servant in the Old Testament. They're called to serve him in his household. And by doing so, they're to be a light to the nations. And now the son, the Lord and master of the house is coming. And he's going to evaluate whether the servants have been faithful to prepare for his coming. So here are the three events all tied together in one narrative to show Jesus as the Lord and King who comes to assert his authority over God's house. It's the entry into the city, and they're on the screen for you, the entry into the city, the cursing of the fig tree, and the cleansing of the temple. And let's look at these in the order that they're given to us here in Mark's account. First of all, the entry into the city. I want us to notice a few things that Mark calls our attention to in this part of the passage. One would be the authority of Jesus over the cult. The authority of Jesus over the cult. Jesus, it's very apparent from from the way Mark has written this, Jesus is in complete control over everything that takes place. He sends two disciples into the village ahead of him with instructions how to find this cult. And there is special attention paid to the fact that the cult, no one has ever sat on this cult. In other words, it's never been tamed. There's no mention of the mother donkey, which Matthew includes. Mark's attention is on the young, untamed colt over which Jesus miraculously asserts his authority. And the disciples are given instructions just to walk up and start untying this colt, which I find just just remarkable, when these anonymous neighbors or whoever it is that's around, they start asking, hey, what are you doing? They're supposed to reply, the Lord has need of it and will send it back right away. Well, that's not a very thorough explanation. (laughs) Imagine somebody taking your car. Don't worry, the master needs it and he'll he'll bring it back right away. We, could, we can hypothesize that Jesus had made provision ahead of time by, by communicating with the, the owner ahead of time. I don't think that's very likely. If that were the case, they wouldn't have need to ask the question. The way the story is told, it makes us think these neighbors, they really don't have any idea what's going on, but a word from the representatives of Jesus is enough to satisfy them. And it's, okay, go ahead, take it. Jesus is exercising his authority over an untamed cult and over the unnamed owner of that cult for his own sovereign purpose. Well, we also see the acclamation of Jesus by the crowd. This is a scene with a lot of people. He says, many spread their cloaks on the road. Others are spreading these leafy branches cut from the fields. There are people going in front and people following behind. And it is a noisy, exuberant scene. People are shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And Gary explained to us at the beginning of the service uh, what that means. It's an expression, both an expression of petition or a cry of help saying, save us. But it also functions as an exclamation of praise saying, this is the one who has come to save us. They're repeating the words of Psalm 118 in a way that shows they think he is about to fulfill their expectations of the coming Davidic king, the son of David. So it's an exciting moment. And if you don't know the story, you are ready for pomp and glory and success. 
But Mark finishes this section on a pretty different note. And that would be in verse 11, the examination of the courtyard, the temple courtyard by Jesus. The tone becomes uh, much more quiet and sober here in this verse. Not necessarily because the crowds have left, but that's not what Mark is paying attention to now. The way he writes, it kind of seems anticlimactic, doesn't it? It says Jesus entered Jerusalem. He went into the area of the temple and looked around at everything. And for that day, that was it. It says because it was getting late, he went back to Bethany to spend the night. So what was the point? The point was the looking around. He was looking around the courtyard, observing what was going on, making his observations, making his plans, what he was going to do when he returned the very next day. And so we're left waiting with some suspense to see what is going to happen. And so we're kind of caught off guard when Mark picks up the story the following day and tells us about a seemingly pretty weird event when Jesus seems to get mad at this fig tree and pronounce a curse on it because it doesn't have any fruit. And he even tells us it wasn't the right time of year for fig trees to bear fruit. So what's going on here? I mean, is Jesus just getting mad, losing his temper, acting irrationally? We know that must not be it. There must be another explanation. So why does it even get included at this point in the story? It seems pretty random. Why doesn't Mark pick up where he left off and tell us what Jesus is going to do with the temple? But that's our clue. Because actually Mark and Jesus are telling us through an object lesson what is going to happen to the temple and to the nation that was entrusted with the temple and its service. So figs and fig trees are actually used fairly commonly in the Old Testament to illustrate the blessings of God upon Israel, or in some cases, they illustrate the nation of Israel itself. So for example, Jeremiah 24, God gives a vision to Jeremiah of two baskets of figs placed before the temple. One basket is very good and desirable, but the other basket is bad and spoiled, so it can't be eaten. God tells him these two baskets of figs, again, remember, right in front of the temple, they represent two groups of people within the nation of Israel. One group will be blessed and treated with favor in the land of exile. And the other group will receive God's judgment and curse there in the city of Jerusalem. Those who seem to still be trusting in the city and the temple receive God's curse. Those who are removed actually are blessed. But there is an, an image uh, a little bit further back in Jeremiah, in uh, Jeremiah chapter 8. Here's an image that's even more similar, I think, to, to Mark 11. This is where God is pronouncing judgment on his people, Israel, and he says it this way in verse 13, Jeremiah 8, when I would gather them, declares the Lord, that is, gather my people, when I would gather them, there are no grapes on the vine, nor figs on the fig tree. The people are supposed to be God's harvest 
of grapes and figs, but they're not ready. That means it's time for judgment. And this is kind of like the prophecy of Isaiah 6, towards the end of Isaiah 6. The warning of judgment is not fulfilled during the time of the Babylonian captivity. It plays itself out when God's Son comes to His people and their hearts are dull and their ears can hardly hear and their eyes cannot see who this really is standing before them. I mean, they're willing to acclaim Jesus as king, but only on their terms, not on his. They want nothing to do with the king who will not affirm their Jewishness and their national pride. They will not have a king who exposes their hypocrisy and self-righteousness and carries a cross and calls his followers to do the same. So when Jesus announces the curse on the fig tree, he is actually announcing the fulfillment of Jeremiah 8 to his disciples, even though we're pretty sure they did not get it, they did not understand it at the time, but later the Holy Spirit brought these things to their mind, they understood the true significance of what they had seen, and it's why Mark puts the story together the way that he does. The fig tree represents the nation of Israel. They are not bearing fruit for their king. So Jesus says, I am going to take over. I am going to execute judgment on the faithless servants who have rebelled against me, and I am going to accomplish God's purpose for his house. And that brings us to the third section of the narrative. It's the cleansing of the temple. So everything we've looked at so far shows us this is actually what Jesus was planning from the previous day, remember, when he, when he went into the temple and was looking around. He had seen the merchants and the money changers practicing their business in their obvious arrangement with the temple authorities. They're making a nice profit for everyone involved. And Jesus says they have completely perverted the, God's intended use of his temple. So he refers to Isaiah 55, where God says, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. And Jesus says, You've made it into a den of robbers. God had revealed his stated purpose for his house. He gave the stewardship of that house to his servants. And they care nothing about his purpose or their stewardship. It's just a good business opportunity for them to take advantage of. So we need to see when Jesus comes back the next day, it's not like he suddenly just can't take it anymore and he loses control. He's been planning this very deliberately. It is time for him to assert his authority over God's house and see to it that God's purposes are finally fulfilled. So he takes charge over the whole temple area. He drives out the people selling and buying their goods. He turns over the tables of the money changers, the seats of the pigeon sellers. He sets up his teaching, a little teaching spot there, right in the same area, and explains from Isaiah 55 why he's doing this. And from verses 16 through 19, we get the idea. He continues teaching and continues blocking the merchants from doing their business all day long while the priests and the scribes are fuming because they are powerless to do anything to stop 
And it's only when Jesus is done doing God's business for that day that he leaves and he and the disciples go back out of the city. But Mark is not done telling the story. He's been showing us how Jesus has demonstrated his authority in all these remarkable ways over the donkey, over the temple, over the temple authorities who are the rulers of Israel. Now Mark wants to take us, along with the disciples, back to the fig tree. Because this is where Jesus ties everything together. And he draws the conclusion he wants his disciples to see. So it's the next day. They're passing by that same spot. They see the tree. It's withered up down to its roots, Mark says. And Peter and the others, of course, are amazed. And Peter says, look, the fig tree you cursed, it's withered. And Jesus basically says, yes, here is what I am teaching you from this. And he gives instructions to his disciples about a life of faith and what that looks like. It's the life of God's new people. The life of God's new people. And that's the fourth heading on the screen. In other words, right after Jesus pronounces judgment on the old covenant people of God, the nation of Israel, right after he enacts or portrays that judgment in this vivid, symbolic form, he turns to his disciples and he shows them how God's purpose is going to be fulfilled. Jesus is creating a new people of God. He is calling a new Israel. He is building a new temple. You see, it's not, it's not a coincidence he, chose, he had chosen 12 apostles whom he says will sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. It's in Matthew 19. These men will become the foundation of the church, which Paul says in Ephesians 2 is the temple or the dwelling place of God by his Holy Spirit. He also says in Galatians 6, the church is the Israel of God because she is his new creation where old covenant practices like circumcision have passed away. And instead of circumcision, what defines the new covenant people of God are the things Jesus describes and commands here in this passage. So let's take a look at these concluding verses. What are the defining characteristics that identify God's new people? We want to look at Jesus' words in their proper context. It's what we've been trying to set up all along. So number one, I think it's important, we need to see what is wrong with the abuse of these words, which is practiced by preachers of the modern prosperity gospel. And number two, so we will be instructed and challenged in some areas that are extremely practical and I think also very convicting because Jesus presents them as so foundational to the Christian life. So the first and most basic thing he says is, have faith in God. The life of God's new people is characterized by faith in God. And notice he does not say, have faith in faith. Or faith in the power of your words to make things come to pass, as Word of Faith teachers would claim. Your faith is only as good as the object you place your faith in. We are called to have faith in the personal 
living, sovereign God of the Bible who rules all things according to the counsel of his will. He is not helpless or impotent. He accomplishes his purpose in heaven and on earth. Neither is he remote and detached. He is fully engaged in the personal details of your life. I think we have a hard time keeping those two things together. In our particular theological circles, we know he is sovereign and omnipotent, but we feel, we begin to feel like he's going to do his will no matter what, so what role do we really have to play? And I, I want to address that a little bit more under point three, but for now, I just want to say faith in God means faith in the full picture of how God reveals himself in his word. Yes, he is powerful and transcendent and sovereign. He is also personal and responsive to his people. So the faith Jesus commands us to have is not a vague sense that everything will turn out okay in my life. It's a trust that requires knowing God for who he is. Number two, a life of faith includes a zealous pursuit of God's revealed purpose. A life of faith includes a zealous pursuit of God's revealed purpose. This is what Jesus has been all about in all his actions, in all the events leading up to this point in the story, right? As the king of God's kingdom and the Lord of God's house, he is coming into town to bring about the necessary changes to see to it that God's purposes are going to be fulfilled. What are those purposes? God wants to establish a house of prayer for all nations. Israel has failed to bring that about, so Jesus says, I'm going to do it. I'm going to make it happen. How does he do that? He submits his will to the will of the Father. In just a few chapters, he's going to pray in just a few days from the account written here. He's going to pray, nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. He's going to give his life for this new people he's creating. The living temple will be built upon his death and resurrection. So we see how this runs completely contrary to the prosperity gospel I mentioned a few minutes ago and how prosperity preachers abuse passages like 22 through 24 here. The prosperity heresy says we should claim these verses for our mater ma personal material gain here and now. The way of faith presented in this passage embraces suffering in order to bring about the fulfillment of God's purpose. And that purpose is defined not by earthly gain, but by the establishment of God's house, which is a house of prayer for all nations. The priests in this temple are purified, according to the promise, remember we read in Malachi 3, they're purified to offer up sacrifices that are pleasing and acceptable to God. That's what God is about. That's what Christ is about. What we're called to follow as well. And that brings us to our third point, which is this. A life of faith shows itself in confident prayer. A life of faith shows itself in confident prayer. So he does not tell us to pray and have faith that God will remove suffering from our life. 
He does tell us to pray and believe that God will remove every obstacle that stands in the way of fulfilling his mission on earth. God is building a house of prayer and he uses prayer to build it. And I think a lot of us, and I'll have to include myself, we struggle with a lack of confidence in prayer. Our prayers are often half-hearted and apathetic and do not reflect the kind of boldness that Jesus tells us to have in this passage. I don't know all the reasons. I can think of a couple of possible reasons. Number one, we don't have confidence that we're really praying according to his will. We can correct that if we take his will seriously, fashion our lives according to his will, take his purposes and priorities seriously, like building his house. Sometimes when we do think we're praying according to his will, we might think it doesn't matter because he's going to do his will anyway. But James 4 tells us there are things that it is God's will to give us if we ask, which he won't give us if we don't ask. You have not because you ask not. In other words, he uses our prayers to bring about his will. And you don't have to explain how that works in order to do it. Like, so like a farmer plants his crops, he doesn't have to understand the scientific process of fertilization and germination and photosynthesis, how all that works. He just plants his seeds because he knows God makes them grow. He also knows if he doesn't plant them, or if he plants them the wrong way, God won't make them grow. Jesus says, ask in prayer, ask in faith, and that's how God makes his kingdom grow. So in God's providence, during the time that I've been preparing for this message, we have heard reports in this church family of three families who've been sent out from Redeemer Church who have experienced what looks like some significant setbacks in their ministry, or at least the, the potential of, of, of some serious setback. The Hotchendales have had their visas denied. Uh, the Rutledges are facing some severe cutbacks in their funding. And Dan Hilmers, uh, just sent a note out this week, uh, is dealing with potentially a, a serious health issue. We don't know the, the full story on that yet. Now, do we know exactly how God is going to work out his purpose in all these situations? No, we don't. I know sometimes God uses these kinds of circumstances to, re to redirect his people to a particular place of service. Sometimes we don't know specifically what to believe or specifically what to ask for. But it would truly be tragic I think you will all agree with me. If God, it would be tragic if God withheld his provision for these servants that I've just mentioned in these areas just because we weren't asking for his provision. Then on the other hand, I know many of you are praying for Dan and Amy and Kevin and Sunday and Max and Laura. And I have to say that brings me true joy and substantial encouragement because this is the evidence of God building his house. Okay, there's one other point 
Jesus considers it necessary to make. This is number four. A life of prayerful faith requires forgiveness among the members of God's family. A life of prayerful faith requires forgiveness among the members of God's family. It's the conclusion he gives, the concluding note that we find in verse 25. He tells us it is so important and foundational to the Christian life, if we don't forgive, God won't forgive us. And this is not the only place he says that. He says it in multiple places, Matthew 6, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 18, the parable of the unforgiving servant. According to Jesus, you cannot call yourself a Christian if you're not willing to forgive those who have hurt you. You cannot pray in faith, you cannot walk the Christian walk, and you have no grounds for assurance while you are harboring bitterness in your heart toward others and especially toward other Christians. If you refuse to forgive another, apparently you believe that your sin against God is not as great as that person's sin against you. And God sees your refusal to forgive that person of a rejection of his forgiveness toward you. So if that's where you are today, the only help, the only hope I can give you is to tell you to repent and look at your own need for mercy and find your motive for forgiveness in the greatness of God's forgiveness toward his enemies like you. And again, I also know of some of you who have passed through dark times of real hurt because of hatred or injustice you received, you experienced at the hands of others. And even though there were times when you weren't sure if you were going to be able to forgive, you reminded yourself of what God had forgiven you. And that enabled you to let go of the anger that you were feeling. And you may not see it yet, but that's beautiful. That's how Jesus equips his followers to live a life of faith. That's how God grows his house. God is accomplishing his purpose to build a house of prayer for all nations. If you are a follower of Christ, you are a participant in that purpose. It's not because you're more righteous and more faithful than the Jews of Jesus' day. It's because Christ sovereignly and graciously made you part of his house. Now there may be some here this morning who need to examine yourself and you may need to conclude you're really not participating in that purpose and you're not a follower of Jesus Christ. You're busy building your own house. You've got your own dreams you want to pursue. But if you know that Jesus is your Lord and your Savior, these words are not a heavy burden. They're a strong source of encouragement. You have every reason to believe fully in your heavenly Father. You have every reason to pray with confidence. You have every reason to forgive those who have sinned against you. 
Christ is building his church and he tells us the gates of hell will not prevail against it. You have the enormous privilege of, of participating in that task and you can pursue it with gusto because Christ possesses all authority in heaven and on earth and he willingly uses that authority to produce faith in your heart, to answer your prayers and teach you to forgive. He's making you part of his house of prayer. Be obedient to that. Be grateful for that high calling. We're going to ask Marta Shea to come up and lead us in prayer at this time.